always get such a kick out of hearing that tune because it means it's time for another episode of the Rec Poker Hot Podcast. And I'm the luckiest guy in the world that gets to host this show every week. Uh, my name is Jim Reed. I'm Bluffsterini in the home game. But you can find out more about me and everyone else at the Wrecking Crew by going to rec.poker slash crew. And I'd encourage you to do that. That's where all the fun folks are hanging out. You can learn about folks like the one and only Daro Carney, uh, but also John Somsky, Rob Washam, Kim Kilroy. And we also love it when our premium members like Troy Chapman come and join us in the uh, podcast and we get to uh, ask questions of uh, these poker luminaries that grace our uh, podcast with their time from time to time. Um, so I got to thank our sponsors, Website Amp and Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. And I got to thank uh, all our Wrecking Crew members who uh, make this such a pleasure every week. So we've got a couple in the room here tonight. John Somsky, why don't you lead us off? My name is John Somsky, and I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Kim Kilroy. I am Fergie 56 in the home game and Pet Bat or Pet Bat 33 everywhere else. And I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 almost everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, I want to thank, like I said, our premium members who may really make this happen for us all here. Pledging 15 bucks a month really helps us uh, keep the lights on. It makes it uh, easier for us to keep the website going, to phrase our operational costs. And of course, it just gives us all more time to be here talking uh, with you. So I just want to shout out Robert Waters, who's been a premium member for a while. Robert, thank you so much for your support. Um, even though we haven't got a chance to see much of you in the strategy conversation. So it's, I really appreciate that you're just supporting us with your premium membership. And then also uh, folks like Joe Coolis, who's a new premium member, who's been diving right in. We had a couple fun conversations in the forums, and I can't wait to get to know Joe more as he's uh, actively enjoying our, our, our content. Um, some of the great training we, uh, content we put out here is based around the monthly theme that Chris Jones puts together every month. The theme this month was ICM and final tables. And we thought, do we know anyone in the poker world who can speak authoritatively about ICM and final tables? Like, wait a second. It's our favorite Irishman, Dara Carney. Let's get Dara back on the show. Dara works on our seminar every month. He's a big friend of the show here. Dara, thank you so much for coming back on the Rec Poker Podcast. Always a pleasure to talk to you, um, to you fine people. Um, I'm honored to be back. <laughs> and I, I believe him when he says that. Uh, it's, uh, I've heard him talk to other podcast hosts and he's very plain with them about his feelings. So it's really, we're in privileged company here. Thank you, Dara, for saying that. Uh, now we're getting you in the middle of, we were talking a little beforehand. Is this the Norwegian, to say it again, Norwegian. The Norwegian Poker Championships. Okay. And they're playing it in Ireland, which is why you're playing. So talk a little bit about what this experience is like here. Why are they doing that? Yeah. It's interesting that the history of this is that, um, Live poker used to not used to be against the law essentially in Norway, but Norway is a fairly poker mad country. Um, they have a lot of online players, but they also like to play live. So they instigated the Norwegian poker temps, but they they weren't able to hold them in Norway. So so they held them in different places every year. Um, I remember one year at the start of my career it was in Dusseldorf in Nottingham in England. Um, another year it was in Riga. Another year it was in Malta. And then about ten years ago they came to Ireland. Um, um, to try to see what Ireland was like and they enjoyed it so much that they decided right from now and we're just going to have it in Ireland and um, it's been back every year since apart from the pandemic obviously and um, even though they, they do actually now have live poker in Norway they still come over to Ireland for the Norwegian Poker Championships because <laughs> it's it's become a sort of an annual pilgrimage and uh, the two Irish the, the two communities Irish poker community and the Norwegian poker community, they gel very well together. They have very, very similar values. I think they just enjoy the social aspect of the game. They enjoy a friendly, relaxed atmosphere where everybody's drinking and uh, and having fun. So um, the Irish love when the Norwegians come over. We have it just before the Irish poker open in the same venue. So essentially, it's like one big super festival. The first half of it is is the Norwegians and the second half is the uh, the Irish open. That's awesome. Um, and I know the Irish Open gets rave reviews uh, here, even amongst uh, recreational poker players. I know uh, we send a big North American contingent every year, including uh, our super fan here, um, Kim Kilroy, who's always talking about how much she enjoys the Irish Open. I think she had a pretty good result there uh, a few years ago as well. So that helps. That helps a little. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... Uh, you were saying like something about uh, the quality of the game. You just think Irish players and Norwegian players are just sort of like disposed towards uh, poker and towards like the social element of it. And that's great. That's why we love those folks so much. 
Yeah, I was talking to a Norwegian um, about this and he, and he, you know, the Norwegian Poker Championships apparently are the biggest national championships in terms of the number of people they get, number of unique people they get. They typically get 1,500 unique players in every Norwegian Poker Championship main event, um, which is pretty incredible because the population of Norway is only five, roughly over, a little bit over 5 million, which is approximately the same as the Irish population. Um, and we probably have an equivalent number of players. Um, both countries are pretty much poker mad. Um, and... Um, it, it kind of shows like Ireland definitely punches above its weight in, in, in the poker world. People are often quite surprised to find just how low our population actually is um, because we, we we do make quite a lot of noise on the in the poker scene. And the Irish Open, as you said, is it's the oldest tournament in, in Europe. Um, it's still one of the most prestigious. And um, it has a particular sort of vibe to it where um, the emphasis is more on the recreational experience and everybody having a good time um, rather than anything else. I love that. I love that. And obviously that's right up our alley uh, over here at Rec Poker. Um, I'd love to just a bit of a tangent, but so what are some of the ways that a poker venue or a poker tour or a poker series can feel more in that way? Like what are some of the actual differences that they might make strategically to to be more friendly or more recreational friendly in that way. Yeah, I think I think maybe the big one that the Norwegians spotted when they came over to Ireland uh, as opposed to the other countries they'd been in is that if you go to most European countries, if you want to have a poker tournament, you have to have it in a casino. Um, you're not allowed to have it outside a casino and there are quite strict regulations and you have to show ID to get in and you have to, there are often security checks to get in, et cetera, et cetera. So it, feel, it feels a little bit daunting. It feels like you're going into a sort of a, closed environment or whatever whereas in ireland poker tournaments just take place in a hotel you just walk in off the street there's no there's no security like you're not frisked before you go in or anything there's no id card you have to show to get into the room anybody can walk in um and that's that might seem like a minor thing but i think it does sort of set the tone for it's just a it's just an easygoing festival similarly um Everybody's allowed to drink at the table. Uh, you know, you don't have to go to a special bar or anything. And that sort of creates uh, the convivial atmosphere as well. Um, Norman Shad actually came to the Norwegians once one year when they were in Ireland, and he was stunned by the amount of alcohol both the Irish and the Norwegians were consuming. <laughs> and he wrote a he wrote a very funny line. He said that there's more drunk, there's more drink spilled on the carpet at the Irish and Norwegian championships that is consumed at the entire WSOP. <laughs> um, it might be a slight exaggeration, but, it, but, but, but only slight. And um, I think also just the sort of Irish attitude towards um, poker is that it's a social occasion. It's not to be taken too seriously. Um, there are some countries in Europe where you go and you feel like nobody's having any fun everything is hyper competitive and people are, you know, squaring up to each other and everything. Um, whereas in Ireland, it's just, it's, it's part of the general culture that goes back centuries where people just got together for whether it was card playing or storytelling or whatever. And um, the, the, the emphasis was more on the social aspect and, and, and the company rather than the actual activity. Well, you know, good, good poker players are good storytellers, you know, and they're, and they're good at, at, understanding when they're being told a story that doesn't make sense right so i know there's a great um you know the irish people have a great lineage of storytellers and an oral history and it wouldn't surprise me at all if that had uh, something to do with it culturally as well um so are you you are so prolific in the poker world uh you've you've, you've got your own podcast you're a book writer you're playing professionally um what have you been working on recently and just that like what, what are you having fun with in poker these days yeah well i, I guess the biggest change for me in the last few months is, is that live poker is now back with the vengeance over here ha having played almost no live poker um, for two years, um, short trip to the WSOP notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. Suddenly now it seems like everybody who runs a poker tournament in Ireland at any time of the year wants to have their tournament right now um, because the restrictions have just been lifted. Ah. So so we've already had ha had a few festivals. Now we're into the Norwegians and the, um, and the Irish Open. And then we have a short break before the Dublin Poker Festival starts. Um, the centerpiece of that is a tournament called the European Deep Stack, which holds a fun place in my heart because... 
um, the very first running of that back in 2008 was my first major live tournament, um, mm. and I ended up winning it. So that kind of got me started on the whole uh, poker scene here. Um, uh, and then after that, we're going to have um, another festival, a Poker Stars Festival, I think, in the middle of May. Mm. So it's going to be pretty much constant uh, live poker from now until Vegas. Um, and, you know, once, once I get to that, then the WSFB has started. So I'll, I'll be heading over there. Um, I'm also uh, doing a short trip to Tallinn, uh, leaving, let me work this out, about 24 <laughs> hours from now. Yeah, I was going to say, it's right around the corner. <laughs> yeah, 24 hours. I'm going there to do, um, mostly to do commentary with David, the, the guy I do the podcast with, as you mentioned, David Lappin, um, on the Patrick Antonius uh, challenge, which um, Unibet are involved with as well. So that's probably the thing that's been taken up most of my focus, just sort of get, getting back to the habit of playing live poker. And I'd, I felt really rusty at the start. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, 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 you mean I have to count other people's stacks now and try and figure out how much they have and divide that by the number of big blinds. I can't just click a button on the screen and it tells me this guy has 69.3 big blinds. Um, so sort of relearning the whole process of, of, of playing live, still working on the fourth book with Barry and obviously still doing all the other stuff that I do, um, the coaching and the podcast, as you mentioned. Um, so been very busy on all fronts, but I guess for the last, most of the last two years, I've been able to do all that stuff without the um, diversion or distraction, whatever you want to call it, of live poker. And now there's an awful lot of live poker, um, um, but it's great to be back. Uh, everybody, I mean, you can see just the pent up demand. People are so thrilled to be able to play live poker again in Ireland. Mm. And um, the atmosphere is always very friendly, but it's particularly friendly now because I think, you know, people are not going to take it for granted anymore um, that because we've had two years without live poker. So um, that uh, absence has definitely made the, the the heart grow fonder in this case. Yeah, I believe that. I think that's true for sure. Um, I'll take a bit of a segue there because um, this is something we do talk about from time to time. You're kind of readjusting from uh, online play to live again. You mentioned a few of those little hiccups that we kind of we can have. Have you ha- have you had any like tricks or uh, what have you any shortcuts or little ways that you can kind of like knock some of that rust off? Or um, is it just a question of kind of like reestablishing yourself in the live uh, arena? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple of things I do. There's just a couple of routines I have at the table where I, I constantly monitor the stack sizes, um, rather than suddenly finding myself in a hand against seat four and having no idea how many chips he has. So, you know, I sort of on my downtime between hands, I'm I'm constantly looking around. Also, when I'm involved in a pot, I you know I tot up right from the start. Okay, the small blind, the big blind, the big blind ante, the raise was so much, the call was so much. What's in the pot now? Um, so that I don't have to stare in the stare blankly into the middle and try and work out from the number of chips, um, which is not a good policy when you're colorblind as I am and you're <laughs> at a pile of chips going. I don't even know what those chips are. So I just have the amount fixed in my head, and 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 then now I'm back to being having to work out what's forty percent of that or what's sixty six percent. As opposed to just clicking a button online, um, and then remembering to do all the other stuff that you're supposed to do live, like look at the guy, and, uh, right? And, and also make sure that you know the exact two cards you have, um, uh, suits and all. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of sort of relearning um, stuff that I, I guess I knew, but just was out of practice um, with. And it's almost like you know going back and learning how to do something you used to be able to do, but you can't anymore. So now you're you're sort of back to basics and and doing this a lot of the stuff that would have been automatic to me two years ago it certainly isn't automatic anymore and i am consciously having to you know look at stacks tot up amounts in the pot all that stuff yeah i think that kind of stuff it takes uh some getting used to and, and some some training right like you have to intentionally do it uh and we've talked before different kind of different kinds of people find it difficult to kind of have that summed up in their brain the whole time but it sounds like for you you start the hand you know what people's stacks are and then that's sort of taking place that's sort of taking some mental space in your mind because you'd rather do that than have to do the calculations um while while you're in the hand there um interesting and of course what's great about that is that then you've you you can spend that time using your brain for other things like you point out looking at the guy and and making some more sophisticated uh tells and, and decisions based on that so uh, one of the things, obviously, we've talked about before, uh, the ICM book, uh, 
uh, end game here. So I can see you've got some very well um, positioned bags <laughs> in the back there. Yeah, exactly. There. Um, so the theme for the month here is ICM and final tables. It's an area that uh, a lot of recreational players find themselves in at a time when their decisions are the most expensive they're ever going to make and where they are the least prepared they're ever going to be. Uh, it's a spot that's hard to prepare for. Um, it's a spot that I think the gap between recreational players and pro players is probably the biggest amongst other. So can you just speak a little bit to sort of that experience or, or what's so important about knowing ICM and why, why most recreational players are kind of missing out on that knowledge? Yeah, like you said, I mean, it's 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 just it just makes a massive difference to your bottom line. Like, you you might not get into these situations where you're two two or three tables out, and ICM starts to become a major factor and and really change the strategy all that often. Um, I think most people have a sort of a, a a reasonably good grasp on how maybe the strategy changes around the actual money bubble, but actually the much bigger bubble for want of a better word comes comes to as you as you push on towards the final table and um just in terms of like when when you make a sl- as what might seem like a relatively small mistake um in ICM terms it can actually just be a huge mistake in in in, in actual money terms you know at the at the start of a tournament where everybody starts with one starting stack and they've all paid their buy-in, like the biggest mistake you can make um, is, you know, some percentage of that buy-in. You know, somebody shoved shoves and they accidentally reveal their hand as aces, and you look down at your hand with seven too often for some reason have a have, have an insane moment and call. You know, that costs you in monetary terms eighty percent of a stack, eighty percent of the buy-in, but. When you get to, into situations near the end of a tournament, let's say somebody shoves, and from an ICM perspective, the worst hand you're supposed to call is Ace Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you fold, if you call with Ace Ten, that could very well be a twenty buy-in mistake, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to make it's just going to make a massive difference uh, to to how you do in tournaments. Similarly, if you uh, decide to fold the Ace Jack, that could be that could be a ten to twenty buy-in mistake as well. Um, so you really have to get those decisions right. Um, and or at least as uh, as good as you can make them. Now, when I came up in in poker almost fifteen years ago, now the way most tournament players started is they started playing sit and goes, um, mm. either ten man tournaments that paid three or six man tournaments that paid two. And when you came to that sort of training ground, you you developed a very good intuitive feeling for um, for ICM. You know, you understood that uh, as you as you approach the bubble, it, it really ramped up and um, and it was important to adjust your strategy accordingly. Now, I think in the last five years or maybe five to eight years, a lot of MTT players just come straight in and they just play MTTs, you know, these vast runner fields, 1,000, 2,000 runner fields on the major sites. And they might only get to, you know, 10 final tables a year. So... Back in the day, we were playing a hundred sit and goes, uh, which were essentially final table simulators a day, and and sort of getting a very good intuitive sense for what to do in those spots. Now these guys are making ten final tables, and that's going to that's going to essentially define their year. Um, if if they could even improve their finishing position by one spot um, through uh, um, understanding ICM and applying it correctly, that would make a huge difference uh, to how they do over the year, um, and. ICM almost became a dirty word in poker for a while. It became a sort of a, you know, these are just people who fold everything and they're all obsessed with the next ladder and they'll never win tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the myths we tried to dispel in the book. Like there are two sides to ICM. When you have the big stack, you should be putting the pressure on the other people. And when you have the small stack, um, you should be aware of how, how it changes your strategy. But it's not a case of just fold everything and hope somebody else busts. That's a, that's a, that's a gross up oversimplification. Um, but it, but it is the case that even a lot of very good players um, are not that fami- we're not that familiar with ICM in recent years, um, which was one of the reasons we decided to write the book. Now, since we wrote the book, it seems like ICM has, has sort of become the buzzword again, and so many people are asking about ICM spots, and you see debates about ICM spots, and a lot of the top players are paying are paying close attention again because I think the message has got out there that it makes a huge difference to your bottom line, whether you're a recreational player or a pro. Um, if you're a recreational player and you make one final table in your lifetime, it's really important that you uh, 
you don't make a big ICM mistake um, on that occasion. Uh, similarly, if you, even if you're an online pro who plays 20,000 tournaments a year online, if if you if you make a hundred final tables in a year, that's that's going to be above average. And how you do on those hundred final tables is going to largely define your year. So it's something which is very important to nail down. Yeah. So is it is it the way that you talk about it? It makes me feel like um, understanding ICM is less about um, like making really excellent aggressive. Like uh, uh, it, it's more about avoiding big mistakes than it is about yeah. making excellent plays, if you know right. what I mean. It, it's more about just avoiding those big mistakes that mm-hmm. are going to take other people out of the tournament or they're going to give up a lot of EV. Um, so it's almost like if you're, if you're, so, I, so it must be hard to kind of judge your success as a recreational player. If you're like, you know, did I make a good ICM move? It's like, well, did I avoid a big, terrible mistake? Then is that how you successfully, is that how you just tell if you're successful or not? Like, Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I I, I always uh, say that poker, or at least tournament poker, is is really about avoiding large mistakes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's more like golf than a sport where, you know, you can, you can, let's say you're taking part in the, long jump in the Olympics, you can do five rubbish jumps and, you know, not even get on the board. But if you nail the sixth jump and jump farther than anybody else, you won the competition and you are the best long jumper in the world. Um, golf doesn't work like that. <laughs> you, can't, you, can, you can't destroy every hole. You, can, you, you, you can't shoot bogey after bogey after bogey. And then because you get one hole in one at the last hole, you've won the tournament. And poker is more like that in my mind, at least tournament poker. It's about, consistency not making big mistakes um even if you make mistakes that they that they shouldn't be too big and then um just g- generally making less mistakes than other people i think cash games are slightly different in a, in a cash game you can you can create uh, your sort of own universe where because of the way you're playing you just frazzle other people and they do they do really weird stuff and you have a better understanding of the of, of the new weird dynamics that you've created but in tournaments like I often recommend um, s- some of the less experienced players that I coach that they go off and watch somebody uh, on a final table. Um, I say like, this guy is one of the best players in the world. So just watch how he plays the final table. And almost invariably they come back and say, he didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He just, he just seemed to make all the most obvious decisions. And uh, you know, is it, what's what's so great about this guy and it's it, and I said well that's it like he, he he just didn't make any mistakes that's that that's kind of the point if you you know the when I think back to World Series main event final tables I think Martin Jakobsen's amazing performance the year he won and again it, it was just a case of he didn't make any mistakes he didn't do any incredible out of the box bluffs or amazing hero calls or or, or any of that stuff uh, he just played incredibly solid poker and uh, made less mistakes than everybody else at the table. And I think that is the essence of tournament poker. Um, it's not about brilliancies or uh, or the eye-catching plays. It's just about constantly making the best possible decisions. Mm. And, and that must be especially true uh, for the fields that we're playing in as recreational players, where okay. the mistakes that the, that the player pool are going to make are much bigger um, are much more frequent that uh, really, you know, most most tournaments that are exclusively played by recreational players are going to be a question of kind of like outlasting the other mistake makers <laughs> until <laughs> until there's only one left. Right? I mean, that's that's the only way I ever win any poker tournaments. Um, just save you know, save all my mistakes till I've already won the tournament. But um, so and obviously the mistakes that you make when the pay jumps are the biggest are the, are the mm-hmm. most, uh, the most, um, expensive mistakes that, that you make. So, um, so you've written this book specifically around this topic. Uh, what were some of the, how did you kind of approach it from a, how can we get this into the words that, a, a, an outsider is going to understand when it comes to like, how can we make an outsider feel, uh, the knowledge of, of ICM coming to an applicable way? Yeah. I mean, the one thing we didn't want to do is we didn't want to have lots of very technical examples and uh, graphs and equity graphs and distribution graphs and all that stuff. What we wanted to do was we wanted to take specific examples, but use them to establish patterns um, or sort of actionable heuristics that people could use when they're in in an ICM extreme situation. So stuff talking about stuff like, okay, 
when you're coming up to the final table bubble and ICM is getting fairly extreme, how does that change your strategy? First of all, your pre-flop ranges change. How do they change? Um, the shape of the range changes. You play, you play more suited aces and kings and you play less low suited connectors and, uh, and no pairs. And that was reinforced by hundreds or, or probably even thousands of sims we ran ourselves, but we didn't just put all the sims into the book. We said, look, we've, we've run the sims. This is, this is how stuff typically changes. Um, when you're the big stack, when you're the medium stack, when you're the short stack. Um, and, you know, we talked about blind defense. Uh, you have to defend your blinds much more um, or much less liberally um, when you're under ICM pressure because, you know, if you defend with, I don't know, king two off and you hit a pair, you're not going to be able to stack off if the guy covers you and ICM is extreme. So what are you trying to hit with king two off? You're trying to hit two pair and, you know, then you might as well be calling with any two cards. So it was that kind of stuff. And then for post-flop, it was similar. We were looking for patterns. Um, what happens when one guy has a lot more chips than the other guy? How does that affect both of their strategies? What happens when they both have a lot of chips and now they're in a pot against each other? What happens when they're both relatively short and how does, how does the strategy change? So, we're assuming that everybody knows how to play poker. Like we're not teaching them how to play a flush draw or how to play Jack's everybody's favorite hand. Um, but we are saying that, you know, the way you would normally play is the way you would normally play. But when ICM is extreme, then it changes in this way. You know, you, as I said, you add more suited aces to your range, your preflop range, more suited kings, you start dropping pairs, you start dropping a lot of the, uh, the, 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 unsuited hands from your big blind defending range, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and this is why, you know, we didn't want to just list a, a set of rules and say, do this and uh, and you'll be fine. You know, we're, in, in the example of the King 2, I we would go through and say, well, the reason why you can't defend King 2 off anymore is that you, are, you will only flop a weak pair and you won't be able to stack off post-flop against somebody who covers you and is able to apply ICM pressure. So it was all about trying to put it in, into terms that... Um, that made sense to people so that they'll remember the reason rather than the action trying to fo fo um, force a series of rules into their head. The other thing we we've done in all of our books is we've tried to put in as many um, um, illum illuminating anecdotes as possible mm. from my own career. Um, that's just to break up the book, but also to reinforce the concepts in people's minds. And uh, uh, my good friend, Alex O'Brien, the, science writer is actually reading the book at the moment and that's the thing she commented on the most she said she didn't expect to see these uh, stories sort of mixed into the book and she finds she she, she found them really uh really good and illuminating um and we kind of stumbled on that by mis by accident we, we put one or two of them into the early book into the first book we wrote poker satellite strategy and when uh when david lappin reviewed the first book he said yeah those are a really good idea you should actually put more of those in um so we've always made a conscious effort uh, right at the end of the book when we end up with, you know, this is everything we're trying to get across. And then the final pass is to to go through it. And, and I rack my brain to think if there's any um, anecdote or story I can put in that will illustrate the point um, in sort of more understandable terms rather than just saying, well, don't do this because because it's not good. Oh, I love that. Um, and so, yeah, and, and if our listeners don't know, um, Dara is a, a member of the Wrecking Crew here. You can go to rec.poker slash doke, and uh, you can find out about all his work, um, other ways to connect with Dara. Um, and uh, Dara also contributes to our monthly seminar uh, video here that Chris Jones puts together every month, where our members get together and play kind of a simulated uh, tournament scenario and uh, Dara and Chris Jones uh, break it down afterwards, which is so freaking cool, man. Our, our members tell me all the time how much they love the idea that you're going to look at a, a hand that they play and they're going to get some personalized feedback. I, I think that's super cool. Um, the reason I bring it up now is because, like I said, the theme this month is final tables and ICM. And we had a lot of hard, we had some hard times figuring out, OK, there's all these there's Dara's book. There's good theory out there. We can have conversations about ICM and how to play final tables differently. But how how can we practice this? Or like how can we drill? Or like other than other than gaining knowledge, have you had any uh, insight into this, Dara? It, it's a hard thing to practice uh, to like playing shorthanded with ICM implications. Yeah. How, how can we how can we practice that? Yeah, it, it, it is very hard. Like traditionally, my approach has been to just run a lot of sims in in uh, Holdem Resources Calculator, the preflop tool, and um, more recently the, the 
the post flop tools like PO have become ICM aware as well. So you can look at spots too. And that that was actually a lot of the work for the latest book, me just running all those as soon as PO became ICM aware. Mm. I think now there are more and more tools coming on the on the market, which are essentially trainers. So they um they have all the um the pre-solved ranges um built in into the software and you know they this they give you situations you can practice like button against big blind 40 big blinds deep when where icm is fairly extreme or chip leader against short stack etc cetera, etc cetera. so tools like dto now which are essentially trainers um i think they're that's probably going to be the next phase where people just practice a lot mm-hmm. um and rather than having to you know think okay well in this spot i think this is what you're supposed to do and run off and run a sim and 20 minutes later they know whether that's true or not they can they can you know they can maybe play a hundred hands against dto and they'll quickly spot if they're doing something wrong uh you know oh i'm i'm overplaying top pair when i'm covered or i'm uh i'm hanging on too much in spots uh where, where i'm covered etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think tools like dto are probably the next generation of of learning um there are also obviously uh, yeah you mentioned the book. Um, that's it. That's a, that's a reasonably good starting point. I've made a number of free videos as well. If you search for Jaro Carney ICM on YouTube, you'll find them. Um, I did some uh, coaching with Kevin Martin and um, and Barry as well, actually. And um, I did produce a course on. Uh, sorry, I'm currently producing a course with Ryan um, Laplante at Learn Pro Poker. Oh yeah, he's which, awesome. Which goes into a lot more detail on the ICM. So. It was a case there were very few resources out there in ICM. Now there are more resources. And I think other other content creators in the area like Ben CB are now much more interested in producing ICM content. So I think the next year or two, we're going to see a lot more uh, ways to improve ICM, whether it's watching a series of videos by somebody like Ben on, on, on ICM or it's um, using a tool like DTO to, to practice yourself. Yeah, and actually, if our uh, if our listeners are interested, um, another Wrecking Crew member, Tim Fritz, does a session every Sunday, uh, just just drilling with TTO. He t- takes a look at a different uh, a different format, and on Wednesday evenings, he also twitches he streams live on twitch for free uh doing a dto review session uh so you can get to know tim fritz um if you go to rec.poker slash misclick uh that's misclick donkey our man tim over there and uh, he does a lot of work with dto as well uh, kim did you have something there? yeah no i'm thinking that something like dto or some sort of trainer like that would help um because i think fatigue gets to be a huge issue when you make final table after days or hours of playing and you just, your mind isn't as sharp. So if you've got that sort of base of having practiced something, um, then that would help. I found myself when I've, the the couple of times (laughs) that I've been at a final (laughs) table, um, I found that fatigue can be a huge issue. Like, Mm. and, and how do I bring my brain back around to, focusing on what's the best sort of ICM spot and that just not just like playing on remote as I would earlier, like before ICM is an issue. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Rob? Yeah. I had a quick question. So I do all the study. I get really good at ICM spots. I play a lot of MTTs to get that feel, you know, where I'm at. Now I'm in a final table and I got a whole bunch of amateur that have no idea what ICM is. (laughs) Give me a quick tip of how I can take advantage of that or how I might change my strategy. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, the weird thing about ICM is that there's an advantage to not knowing anything about ICM (laughs) if you're on the final table, (laughs) which is that the players who know about ICM... They have to be. They have to tread carefully around you, um, which is one of the reasons why when I'm coaching recreational players, and I tell them if you ever make a final table and somebody asks you about ICM, claim you don't, you've never heard of it and you have no idea what it is, and you certainly haven't read a book on it, and um, because you know there, there's a famous I think it was the W Coop a few years ago where a, a, a Russian guy um, made the final table with a bunch of absolute crushers, and he, he you know he had come come in from a $1 satellite all the way up to the main event. And they were trying to do a deal and he, and he kept typing into the chat box, I want million um, saying he basically wanted a million. And 
they all knew that he knew nothing about ICM and they had to just play incredibly carefully around him. Um, and they were all exploiting each other to say, well, I know this guy knows about ICM. So if I shove into him, he can't really call with anything. Um, but they couldn't do that to this guy. So um, that's that, that's the first point I would say. If, if you do find yourself at a table where literally nobody understands ICM except you do, um, really the only thing you can do is sort of step back and let them all knock each other out. <laughs> um, you can't do any of the fancy stuff anymore. You can't, you know, uh, raise when you're the big stack um, because you know because they know that they have to defend their blinds liberally, uh, much more carefully. If they're going to defend their blinds with the same range and they're going to hang on with bottom pair, all of the strategies in the book are sort of out the window. You can't just apply pressure anymore. You just have to go accept that this is this is the game now. But you do pick up a lot of equity in those spots from them just knocking each other out. And uh, Danny Sprung sent me a very interesting uh, thing recently when I was in Prague, and I had to think about it. He said, if you were at a final table and everybody had the same stack, um, but you were the only player who understood ICM, what position do you think you would come in the most often? And I had a thought about it, and you definitely win the tournament less often than the other players, assuming they have the same skill as you, apart from the fact that they know nothing about ICM. Um, so if if it were a cash game, they were all equally skilled. So you would win less often, um, uh, but you would also come ninth less often. So that, that was my starting point. And then I thought, well, okay, if you're coming first and ninth less often, you're also coming second and eighth less often, because you, when you get to eighth, you're going to be the highest and the lowest in that so so you're probably going to come fourth or fifth more often but you are still going to make more money in the long term uh, than all the other players because your distribution will will see to that but you know that's it that's a theoretical example the uh, in, in the real world, you're not going to find eight players on a final table who understand nothing about ICM but are as good as you in every other way players who don't understand ICM will have other leaks as well they will make other mistakes. So that I would say focus on that. Focus on the kind of mistakes they make and how you can exploit those rather than worrying too much about, well, now I'm not going to be able to use all, all, all my wonderful ICM knowledge to push them around. Um, and, uh, and, and as I said, do step back and just let them, let, let, let them knock each other out. Um, I saw, there was a very graphic illustration of this right at the start of my career. I, made, I used to play in a club in Dublin called the Fitzwilliam. And... Um, I made a final table there and I was by far the shortest stack and there was a huge chip leader. And for some reason, everybody else on the table decided they were going to take on the chip leader um, with a result that I got, I got heads up without ever playing a hand on the final table <laughs> with less chips than I started with. But that, that's, that's basically the exploit. Just like sit back and let the other people uh, burn money, <laughs> burn, yeah. burn their equity. And you'll be the recipient of that. Yeah. Let them make the bigger mistakes, right? Just like we were talking about. Uh, Troy, did you have a question there? Uh, no, it was a similar sort of question. Like, I just came out of a series, Dara, down here in Australia, where I would argue that the majority of the people thought ICM was a new pharmaceutical. <laughs> so um, I was lucky enough to make three final tables. And nice. the stuff that I've seen in the lead up to it, I was going to ask very similar questions to what Rob was talking about there. But how do you start identifying people who, actually have a bit of an idea about ICM because mm. like in the lead up, I almost, honestly, I almost went over and took a selfie with a guy who on the bubble for the cash, we watched two guys who were almost chip leaders collide and have like a million big blinds in the middle and every every short stack got up and almost wanted a selfie with the bloke because everyone <laughs> suddenly got paid. Um, and so you yeah, realise that some of those people just had no clue. And they're just obviously recreational players who do not study, which is perfectly fine. Yeah. But how do you then identify the guys around the table who start doing that fairly quickly? Because at a rec game, I might not play with those guys live ever again or um, I've even started travelling for poker lately. And so I might travel into state and not know anyone there. Um, do you have any tips for being able to identify some of the dudes who are at least a little bit cluier about how how ICM works, apart from the obvious where two big stacks collide? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it is difficult because as you say, like it's, it's usually the outlier where somebody does something really bad and you go, okay, well, that person just doesn't understand ICM. And when I played satellites in particular, where ICM is really the most important skill by, by a country mile, the only note or tag I ever put on players was a tag which indicated this person doesn't understand ICM mm. um, because that was the only thing that really ha- had a massive impact on how I would play them if I ran into them in the future and, and didn't remember that about them. Um, so that's point number one. If they make a massive mistake, you can immediately tag them. You, you, you'll sometimes get a sense from just the way they talk as well. Um, you know, there are certain phrases that people who are not ICM aware use. They talk about you know playing for the win, or um, uh, and 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 sometimes they'll discuss a hand and they um, they'll sort of betray the fact that they were just completely on, on ICM aware. Um, in that spot. One thing David Lappin does um, in those fields, which is a little bit sneaky, but he'll sometimes, you know, it'll fall around to him on the button and he looks down at seven deuce off. So he has no decision. And then he'll eventually fold and people will say, well, what were you thinking about? And he'll say something ridiculous like, oh, I had it, I had, um, I had ace queen there, but um, I didn't think that was strong enough to shove. And immediately people, sometimes at the tip, People will go like, "That's clearly a shove." So now you know that those guys are ICM aware. And if some if somebody else goes like, "Oh yeah, I guess you need S King there," uh, which is clearly wrong, you'll 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 know. First of all, they're probably not ICM aware, but also the way in which you would exploit them—they're actually too tight. They think ICM makes makes you tighter than 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 it should be. So you can you can use tricks like that generally by talking to people. You will get a you will get a sense, but you have to be careful too. Obviously, people can fool you as well. Um, you know, people can pretend they know nothing about ICM, but they actually do. And as I said, there there is a, it is to your advantage if the other players think you don't understand ICM because um, they'll stop shoving into your blinds then thinking you might make a bad call or um, that they, they just have to play much more carefully and, and, and honestly against you. So it is it, it, it is very difficult for sure. I mean, sometimes, you know, by their track record as well. Like if you hand a mob a guy and he has an incredibly impressive record, um, then there's a good chance he is ICM aware. If you if you if you hand a mob a guy who has made a lot of final tables but keeps but keeps coming seventh or eighth, <laughs> there's a decent chance he doesn't. Uh, he's he's not that ICM aware. Um, and even like you know some some pros I know are in that category. I would say that probably the biggest flaw they have is they're not ICM aware, so they don't play final tables very well. And that does tend to be borne out by their record. Um, they don't finish top three very often, and they they tend to come sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth a lot because they have this idea, this wrong idea, that they you kind of have to go mental aggressive from the start of a final table and try and run run it over. And more often than not, that results in eighth place, or that results in eighth or seventh place more often than it actually results in everything going right for them and them winning. So one thing, and I know we're going to let you go here because you're at the end of a long day of grinding live in the Norwegian uh, Championship. Um, so for recreational players that are unfamiliar with ICM final table play, the one point that seems to be consistently driven home by every, t- every time we talk about this is the most important thing is stack size. What are the stack sizes at the table? What is your stack size relative to the lower small st- stacks and the big stacks? Is it just that simple or is there something else that's kind of equally important when we're when if someone was just getting into this with their own uh, mind yeah that's that, that, that is a extreme importance also the um the payout structure is important and this is something that people often get back to front they often think if the payout structure is very top heavy in other words the, the jumps are quite big that means the icm is big and if the payout structure is flat um, ICM is, is is less of a factor. It's actually the other way around. The flatter the payout structure is, uh, the more extreme the ICM is. And the easiest way to realize that is that the most extreme ICM situation is a satellite where there are no pay pay jumps apart from the first one. Um, you know, if 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 there are ten prizes, they're all of equal value. So there's a huge jump from eleventh to tenth, but then there's nothing after that. Um, whereas in a very top heavy payout structure. Um, ICM is is less of a factor, and you know events like the w, the World Series main event have moved towards a top a more top heavy payout structure, let's say. Um, and you have to kind of understand that that does change things. Then it 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 actually makes the ICM less extreme. So um, after stack size, I would say payout structure is 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 the next most important um, factor. Perfect. 
Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming by and dropping some wisdom on us uh, reckies over here and uh, helping us share our love of poker with the rest of the poker world. Um, if people do want to get in touch with you for coaching or uh, anything else like that, what's your preferred way for folks to reach out? Uh, yeah, specifically for the coaching, um, usually the best way is just to uh, send, send me an email um, detailing your current level um, and what areas you're looking to improve and what, what your what your short to medium term ambitions are for poker. Um, because I'm definitely not for everybody. Like there are some people, they would be better off finding another coach. Um, but uh, it's it's very important for me to have a sense of where you are and where you want to go. Um, so if you send me an email at uh, doke poker coaching, D-O-K poker coaching, all one word at gmail.com. In general, probably the best place is just, is just to hit me up on Twitter um, at Daro Kearney. Um, pretty, I, I tweet out pretty much all the stuff I do there. Um, the uh, the videos, the the books, the the strategy articles, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is a, um, a a landing page uh, uh, put together recently, which kind of details all the stuff as well. Um, and there's a link to that from from my Twitter bio. So I would say Twitter is probably the best place to follow me. Um, I pretty much just use ex- Twitter exclusively. Uh, to sort of let the let people know what I'm up to in poker terms, I don't get too much involved in the um, uh, the, the, the the constant battles over <laughs> the vaccines or whatever else Ukraine or whatever else people are are, are debating on Twitter on poker Twitter that week. Um, yeah. I leave that to David Lappin. That's that's his path. <laughs> Divide and conquer. There you go. Everyone's yeah. got their areas of expertise, right? David's David's not afraid to uh, tell Twitter how he feels either. So that's that's a good fit. Uh, right on. Well, um, that's great. So yeah, at uh, Darrow Carney on on Twitter. Um, I know you're a lot of fun to follow there. You engage with a lot of your fans as well. So that's fantastic. Um, Dara, thank you so much. I know you bagged a big uh, a big stack of chips today. So uh, get some sleep and go crush that field tomorrow and go go win that final table, man. Thank you very much. Uh, it would be it would be nice to uh, to put it into practice. There you go. All right. Well, thank you again, Dara, and uh, I'm already looking forward to getting Dara Carney back on the show next time. We can talk about whatever new and exciting things are coming up in the world of uh, book writing, professional poker playing, and uh, everything else that he's got going on. A great, great guest and a great friend of the of the show. Thanks again, Dara. So, John, we are here. It is the community segment of the show. We're going to talk about home games and what's coming up in uh, Rec Poker Land. Oh, yeah, I forgot. And again, if people want to find out more about Dar, you can go to rec.poker slash doke, D-O-K-E, and uh, learn about why uh, Dar is so excited to be a part of Rec Poker Nation as well. Um, like our home games and the other fun stuff that we do over here that you can learn more about at rec.poker. John, what's been going on in home game land this week? Well, to start off, we had Swedish Fishy 77 uh-huh. Lars win his third nightly tournament for the year. Nice. A big deal 1992 Brian DeHaven got his second win of the year. Well done. Noah 12 uh, with lots of H's. Uh, 1291 Noah Anderson got his first nightly victory for the year and still on a tear. Stewie 13, Stuart Kendrich got wow. his third nightly for the year. Wow, he is really on a tear. That he's he's dark horsing it for like player of the year here. I don't know how he keeps winning all these tournaments. Yeah, that's his sixth win this year overall. Yeah. And it's April third fourth at the date of this recording. So that's pretty yep. impressive. Then Jacal won, James Cree won the daily mixed event. Oh, nice. James, way to go. One of our new premium members. That's fantastic. Um, for international events, just a reminder, the 8 o'clock one does have to have two people registered <laughs> at 8 o'clock to actually run. <laughs> I'm not all that worried about. We run 40 <laughs> tournaments a month, so if one of them doesn't go so people don't show up, that's fine. But for the 2 p.m. event, A Big Deal 1992, Brian DeHaven won Whoa. his first international victory. Wow. Okay, that is a big deal. Yeah. Then a really mad guy won the LPP event. So you can contact Jim at rec.poker to get your free month at Learn Pro Poker. Mm, don't want to miss that chance, my man. Uh, email me and we will set you up with a free month at Learn Pro Poker. There's a lot of great stuff going on there. Um, you just heard Dara talking about he's doing an ICM video with uh, Ryan LaPlante. And I'm sure that's going to be great. So uh, go check that out and don't be shy. Let me know, Jim at rec.poker. Um, 
let me see what else. If this is coming, oh yeah, I should have mentioned this during uh, Dara's interview as well. This this interview comes out on Tuesday, April twelfth. The very next day, Wednesday the thirteenth, um, our premium members are going to be joined by Steve Blay in uh, the Focus. So every month in the Focus, uh, we're going to look at a different training tool or uh, software or uh, another way to study poker. And we're going to have the developer or someone who's an expert with the program every month to come and explore it with our members. So in April, um, Steve Blay from Advanced Poker Training, which is a kind of a similar tool to DTO, which we were talking about just now. Um, Advanced Poker Training is a program where you play against bots, basically, and you can program them to simulate certain player fields, uh, certain villain types, that kind of thing. And then you can simulate different tournament or cash structures as well. So uh, come on down on uh, Wednesday the 13th, and Steve will show us uh, how we can use Advanced Poker Training to simulate a final table and uh, get some of this practice in that we were talking about with Dara, because it is hard to, it's hard to practice. It's hard to simulate this kind of thing uh, with real, with real situations. It just doesn't come up that often. Uh, Rob, how are we doing in the book study too? We got uh, some fun happening over there, I think. Yeah, we're, uh, we're studying uh, beating small stakes poker tournaments Um, right now. um, We've had one session by the time you hear this, the second session will have gone off, which is, uh, the sixth, I believe today, yep. uh, the sixth this week. Um, and we'll probably have maybe one or two more sessions after that. And we're going to go to the next book and there's a Twitter poll that should have finished now. And, uh, so I'll have four books that I'm going to put out in a Twitter poll and I'm going to put it out probably this weekend. So by the time you hear this, you will have a few days, uh, before the poll goes off. I like to keep them going for a week. And then we'll be down to that book that we're going to um, we'll be down to that book that we're going to study after beating small stakes poker tournament by Jonathan Little. That's going to be fun. I love it when we get a chance to uh, give the members exactly what they're asking for, right? So uh, go check out that poll and pick the next book that we're going to uh, find some rules studying along. One of the interesting things is one of the top four books that are going to be on the next poll is Endgame Strategy by Ooh. Dara O'Carney. How about that? I wonder so if we can get them on the show. So that could very well be the next book that we uh, get into. <laughs> there you go. Well, with WSOP right around the corner, it's uh, not too late. It's not too early and it's not too late to start thinking about that kind of thing. Uh, speaking of WSOP, um, if you are a premium rec poker member on June 1st, we're going to put your name in a hat and then we're going to draw a name out of that big old hat. And whoever's name we pull is going to win the chance to be my partner in the tag team event number 55, uh, the bracelet event down in the World Series of Poker. Uh, the first day of that tournament is Sunday, June 26th. So that gives you about three weeks from the drawing to decide if you're going to be able to make it down or not. Yeah, Troy says he'll do it via Zoom. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might, yeah. Okay. We'll talk about the logistics of that offline, Troy. Um, but yeah, all it takes is uh, five bucks to get your first month of Rec Poker Premium membership. Uh, come join up in the next month or two. And if you are an active member on June 1st, maybe it'll be your name that gets pulled out of the hat. We're going to buy your entry. Um, you're going to, you're going to come and play with me and one of us, and maybe we can win a bracelet for rec poker. How much fun would that be? Um, the only other thing I want to tell people about is if you see John Somsky in the world, make sure that you get a photograph of you buying him a beer. Um, if you buy John a beer between now and WSOP and document it in a photograph, I will buy you a beer when I see you down in Las Vegas. So it's a free roll. Uh, John does so much for the home games here. When you started, there was only one a month. Now there's about 40. Um, so he he puts a lot of himself out there and he deserves uh, he deserves a little libation every once in a while. And John, again, I'll tell you, you're welcome to substitute a tea or coffee or orange juice or something if they're getting at you too early in the morning. But um, I want to buy some people some beer down in uh down in Las Vegas. So I want to get some photos. I want to see it on Twitter. People buying John Somsky a beer. There's a hashtag in there somewhere. Hashtag buy John a beer. Hashtag John beer. I don't know. We'll figure We'll We'll, we'll, we'll workshop uh, that offline. Uh, all right. Well, is there anything else that we should get into tonight, folks, or roll on out of here? 
Um, it was a great conversation. I always have a good time when uh, Dara's on the show. So I just want to thank uh, Dara O'Carney and, of course, our wonderful sponsors, Website Amp and Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. Uh, Rob, Kim, and Troy and John for coming and hanging out. Uh, Steve Fredlin for putting all this together. And, of course, you, the listeners. Talk to you again soon.